This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Play the play on the show. show, show. See if we can sort out all of the issues that are underlying, simmering on the back burner, perhaps boiling into full view. Two contract extensions that the Seahawks, well, they're kind of commanding front and center attention. We bring in Brock Heward now, fresh off a weekend in Canton, to talk to us and see if we can sort everything out. It's Blue 42. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint left, G, U corner, halfback, flat, on two, ready, right. Now here's your host, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42! Blue 42! Sup, Mr. Hall of Fame? What's up, dog? How you doing? How you doing? Yeah, it was nice. How was your weekend? Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, pretty neat. Never been on a Learjet before. That was a a new experience. Hold on. Yes. What? What? You flew on a Learjet? Explain more. I did. It was kind enough of, <laughs> excuse me, Peyton was kind enough for a few of us to kind of set up with some of his friends in this area. And, and this was a big Bronco booster. In fact, the, the oh, owner yeah, of the okay. Arabian horses that the, the Broncos used to run out before kickoff and everything. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful family. Older older gent and his, and his beautiful wife. And they had some extra seats on their Learjet. So Peyton reached out to them and they said, Absolutely. So flew at 41,000 feet. You realize Learjets fly at like 42,000 feet? No. Whew, I didn't either. So, uh, yeah, we, we zoomed over there and, and got in and just walked on the tarmac on the way home yesterday. And unfortunately, it was right during our show. And uh, so I couldn't, or your show, I couldn't chat with you all yesterday. But that was that was the first kind of surreal moment. There were a lot of them over a course of, I think, less than, yeah, about 24 hours in and out, and uh, seeing lots of old teammates, seeing just lots and lots of Hall of Famers, and seeing fanatics, man. Some of those fans that make the trip to Canton to celebrate their their heroes are some of the most fanatical people, I think, uh, in all of sport. I, I have I have about five Learjet questions, but I think we should get to football, and we might mix those in later. Okay, great. Speaking of jets, a man who has his own private jet. You see the logo on the side of it? Russell Wilson, he is the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. Brock, in what ways can a quarterback significantly improve at age 32, 33 by the end of the year as their athleticism begins to decline? Well, you've seen it. I mean, you've seen it with the guy that I went and and celebrated uh, in Peyton Manning. You see it with the guy that's 44 years old who I was able to catch up with uh, that had a lot more hair. Tom Brady's got a lot more hair now than I ever remembered him having in his 30s. Uh, you see it and saw it with Drew Brees, even as his arm diminished, finally diminished to the point where you know he really couldn't throw with much below. But those guys in their at this age, in their 30s, prior to Peyton's injury, they were in the prime, prime, prime of their career. Paul, as the game just slowed down, and I know that was one of the kind of one of the narratives and commentaries from from a lot of people watching the the mock game on Sunday was man Russ got a lot more control and mixing that tempo and and getting in and out of plays and while he's always had that now it is the the full menu of whatever he wants to do at the line of scrimmage and with 10 years of experience Paul that game kind of like an experienced umpire with a strike zone that that game 
should slow down. It should become easier to call the balls and strike, see what's coming at you, and then go attack it with the weaponry that they're going to give him this year. That that question of how this impacts Russ and like what he's because he's been in the league for an awful long time. I, I'm I'm really I'm really interested in seeing how he can operate in a different offense because yep. he's had a different coordinator, but he's never had a truly different offense. Correct. Correct. Yeah, he's had his master's, right, Pete? Remember that was he said that yes. four or five years ago. We're going to get him his master's degree. Well, he had his master's in Pete's offense. He had his master's in Bevel and Shoddy's offense. That was really under the umbrella of what Pete wanted, and now it's outside of Pete's umbrella a little bit too. And and now you're going after a PhD to keep this kind of metaphor going in a different in a different course, right? Learning new language. That that's not what Peyton did when when he went to to Denver. He brought his people with him. Yeah. You know, John Fox was, you asked me, Danny, before we jumped on, I, I don't know how you framed it, but one of the more memorable conversations was with John Fox, who was real warm before even the event began. And, you know, he was talking about that and bringing these guys here and they had to learn Peyton's system. So he basically stayed in the same language for, for 18 years. Now you saw with Tom Brady last year, Tom Brady was basically in the same system under, under, Belichick's umbrella. Do you remember the first half of their season last year? Yep, I do. Remember what Tom Brady looked like at times? Yes. Tom Brady, who's won how many Super Bowls? Six. So, yeah, it took it took a learning curve. And, and I'll go back to Aaron Rodgers, who we had, who I had a couple times last year. And he said that. Like, yeah, you know, Lafleur comes in here, and I wanted a new system. I wanted a new language, but I still wanted my language. He wanted his language. In year one, we didn't get on the same page. Year two, they did. And he's the MVP of the league. So I've made this point to you guys a bunch. I hope Seahawks fans understand it. If Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady take some some learning curve to climb, even at the stage that they were at in their careers, there's going to be a learning curve to this PhD of a new system Russell's learning. Question two. Do they have checks snack mix that they hand out on the Learjet? Like what do they what do they bring around? No, the uh, the Gruyere puffs. No, they have Spanakopita. Some good like mini cinnamon rolls. Oh, mini sand- cinnamon rolls. Sandwiches. Oh, sandwiches. Mimosas. If you wanted those, <laughs> which I'm not a you big mimosa guy. You did not drink guy. a mimosa, I'm Brock. A, I'm not a mimosa guy. Not a champagne. No, you're guy. you're a Bloody Mary. You're an eye opener. No, 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 no. Not really. You're a, a you're a Wyman drinking whiskey out of the sock kind of guy. Not a morning drinking guy at all. But they were having a good time. <laughs> Okay, actual question two. Scale of one to ten on simmer, simmering contract extension tension. One is no worries. It's going to work out. They'll get through this. Ten being, oh, my God, Cam missed two games in 2015 and Seattle went 0-2. Eight. I want you to tell me where your one to ten concern yeah. is with Jamal Adams. I think uh, both of them are in an eight. Eight. Whoa. Yeah. Seven eight. eight. Yes. Yeah, because both of these guys have played the Cam Chancellor card, basically. Uh huh. Both, both of them have done that in their career and, and said, like, yeah, man, you know, for Jamal, you know, he was incredibly public and uh, very, very loud. And, you know, his disgust for that organization and forced his way out. For Dwayne, if I remember right, CX traded for him when he was holding out. The last time around, correct? In Houston, he he wanted a deal. He was yep. he was not going to play. He was sitting out. So both he also of them, hated the owner. 
Like it was also, it was like he didn't, it wasn't he just the, professional. He hated, he the, hated the, owner. the owner. Jamal hated the organization. Yeah. They wanted their money. They wanted their money. And unlike Cam, where it felt so out of character, kind of like with Russell this offseason, right? There were so many times you're like, man, this, this doesn't sound like Russ. This isn't Russ's brand. This seems so outside the realm of who Russ is. It was tenfold, if we remember, with Cam. Like, Cam would never do this. So it it felt that way. With these two guys, they're going to be staunch and I think pretty hard-headed that they want their money, that they're not going to put on the, the uniform and go play until they get the deal they want. And equally, Matt Thomas and John Snyder are going to say, this is the way we do our deals. This is this is what we got. This deal, especially for Jamal, this is where we're at. This is not going to change. For Dwayne, I think, unfortunately, he's got a, a weight on Jamal. And to me, that's where I, I'm kind of curious where the simmering tensions go. <laughs> Does Dwayne make a little noise privately? A hey, Jamal, like, take care of your business so so the rest of us can get our business done. You know, that, that'll be kind of the next, to me, little simmering narrative behind the scenes. But, yeah, it's an eight. Quarterback knows it. He knows he needs that left tackle. The system won't function as well. He's got enough to, to handle to learn it, as we talked about in the last question. Let alone worry about it left tackle. Who, who it's going to be. So, yeah, I, I'd put it – it's not a 10. I, I, I don't know if they're going to quite go that route to miss game checks, as Cam Chancellor did. But it certainly is a certainly is an 8, certainly is a B-plus working its way towards that. Brock, I've thought the same thing that you did, that maybe Dwayne is next in line because the Seahawks have tended to, to do that. Like, Bobby's contract got none after Russell's contract the last time they, they were both in position for extensions. The other possibility, I know that Seattle wants to extend Jamal Adams, and they feel that they've made an offer, and they've kind of gone and stretched as as, as far yes. as, as they're comfortable doing. I'm not sure we know how they're going to approach Dwayne Brown. I, think that's I, fair. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to ex- offer him an extension or if their offer of an extension would be anywhere in the neighborhood of what he's looking for. That's probably the one I'm more worried about. Yeah, I think that that's all very fair, and... And I just don't. I mean, what is Jamal going to do? Here, here's the deal. And yeah. and you know, I, I think it was you or I was reading um, somewhere. I think from Seven Ten Sports about just the leverage that man. How have how have the Seahawks? It feels like seemingly they've they've lost some leverage with these players. They're allowing them just to to sit in and and you know call the shots. Well, I, I don't look at it that way. Like Jamal, it's starting to tick here, and he's going to want his week one check. Yes. Right, that, that's that's a lot of money. He's not gotten his payday. No, you know it, it's he, he's not made his, and it's why Cam kind of had to put his head down and come back to work after losing two game checks. That this crew is just not they're not going to set that precedent for you, Jamal, and, and what's to come with DK and others that they continue to pay. It's why that precedent has been set. Why the structure of these deals has been the way it's been with Richard and Earl and Cam and Russ and Bobby. And why, you know, his agency and his representatives that, you know, when the Seahawks made that trade, and, and I know they were excited, they should have at that very moment gone, okay, well, here's what we're dealing with. I remember when I was drafted, my agent Marvin Demoff said, okay, here's what you're dealing with. All right, here's Ted Thompson. Here's Mike Holmgren. Here is, oh gosh, who was the, who was the Matt Thomas uh, at that time? He went on to be, go to Tennessee, Dan, uh, Danny, oh man. Uh, Rustin Webster? No. Ryan, oh, Reinfeldt. Mike there Reinfeldt. You there you go. <laughs> and Marvin gave me a checklist of these three guys. This is the way it's going to be. This is how they negotiate. You know, Mike's going to come in. He's got all these titles now, and he'll play both good cop and back, bad cop. And Ted Thompson's a great guy. And, but Reinfeldt, he's, he's, 
he's ball buster and like this is the deal and and it's going to be what it's going to be and that's the way it's going to go so Jamal should know should have known when that trade happened this is this is the organization you're dealing with this is the way it's going to go they're not going to break precedent for you no matter if they even gave up two first and a third not going to happen and eight for both though doesn't that doesn't that have the connotation that you feel maybe neither of them will be on the field for week one not necessarily a 10 I would feel that way but it, but as far as things starting to, to bubble and sizzle a little bit when when Russell goes public it's yeah it's it's sizzling a little bit first preseason games this weekend right you don't have many of these snaps of, of you know full speed reps that you know and and now they've said well Dwayne's not gonna play anyway and try to soften that blow a little bit and give that one a little bit more time but Woo-wee. I'd, I'd sure like to see these guys play. I'd sure like to see a couple of your best. Son of a coach. Like Son to, of a coach. Brock here is like, I'd like, like to let them get, a, get their, I, get their, get like their fannies the out on the field. I'd like to see your best players, not only for their sake, but for the rest of the guys' sake. I'd like to see them out there uh, so you can hit the hit week one in Indy on the ground running. Get on out there. Move them out. Ah, question three. Real quick, Rock. ESPN said there's a 37% chance that three of the four NFC West teams make the playoffs, a 3% chance that all four make the playoffs. I could see four happening. I mean, who's going to be the wild card team from the East or the North or from the South, especially with what New Orleans looks like right now, which is a mess? Yep. Four is a stretch for me. I think I think that would be difficult. I think we'd have to see a level of consistency from Arizona's personnel we've not seen in the first couple years. They brought in a lot of veterans to go for it this year for both Cliff and Kyler and the whole system and everything else. That feels like a little stretch to me. But the other three, if they stay healthy, are absolutely talented enough to, uh, to, to find themselves in the playoffs with 17 games. 17 is going to stretch players 25 through 53 more than ever before you are going to feel that depth and the importance of it more than ever before with that 17th game played so and and i think the seahawks those untested in some areas like everybody in some of those depth numbers i think they feel pretty good about 25 through 53 better than they have maybe even in the last couple years so i i'd see three four for me paulie would be a bit of a stretch he is Brock here. Joins us every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday for Blue Forty Two. We'll be talking to him on Thursday about the next preseason game. Okay, Brock, what is the most delicious thing you ate on the Learjet? Oh yeah, that whatever those little mini cinnamon roll things were. They were okay. Yeah, they were. They were really, really good. Now at Peyton's party, yes, uh, yeah, he had the the Saint Elmo shrimp, um, and I didn't know that Ooh. at first bite. Yeah, it comes mm. up and get, it comes up and gets you, but. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't really put that down. So, and it was so man, it was so surreal. And I did think of Titus, how much he loves football and these players. And if he could have just like sit over there with Marshall, Peyton's little guy, and just you know see everybody. And but you know, for any football fan, for you two, you know, to see Dan Marino walk in there, and, and when you're dealing with Peyton Manning, you you see everybody, right? The who's who of all the media want to come over and see it. There were so many gold jackets that. I think every one of them, you know, that were on that stage basically wanted to come over and, and congratulate Peyton at his party. So it was pretty surreal to see all of those players, coaches, uh, past and present underneath his uh, his canopy at his party. Pretty special deal. Well, it was a really awesome moment for you to be included into, and we appreciate you for sharing the stories. Brock, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Thanks, Sounds man. good, boys. See you. 
that is Brock Heward. Again, he will be back with us on Thursday. Tomorrow for Blue 42, we'll have Michael Bumpus. Our training camp coverage here at 710 ESPN Seattle is brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Paul, you don't really think there's going to be four teams from the NFC West that make the playoffs, do you? I don't think it's going to be four, but I think it's going to be close. I, I just think the rest of the NFC stinks. I, I look at the NFC East. I mean, is Washington football team the best team in that division because of their defense alone? People are talking Dallas up again as if Dallas has one of the best offenses in the NFL. But we got to see Dak Prescott back on the field. In the NFC North, who's the second best team? After the Green Bay Packers, now that Aaron Rodgers is back in the fold. Who's going to be able to beat Green Bay once? Detroit with Jared Goff? Is it going to be Minnesota with the way that they currently look? Is it going to be Chicago, who doesn't even know what their quarterback is? And then in, in the NFC South, it is legitimately, to me, a one-team division again. It's the Bucks, The Falcons, they got rid of Julio Jones. The Panthers have Sam Darnold as their quarterback. And then in New Orleans, who's going to be their quarterback? Do they even have their best wide receiver? How is Alvin Kamara going to mesh with either of these two new quarterbacks? It's a wide-open, I think, conference right now outside of the NFC West. I almost wish there was some division realignment going on. Now, all that being said, I can see your logic. I would still say, like, 10-to-1 odds against, like, would you would you say it's, it, if I gave you a 10-to-1 odds? Because this is generally how people try to... Uh, to, to test like how strongly you believe in something is would you make a bet about it? Uh ten to one no. But what they have right now at three percent, oh I would I would one hundred percent do that. What would that be? Well three three per three percent's crazy. Like three percent. You can't you can't make thirty three to one? one? Okay. So if I said a ten dollar bet, I'll bet you ten dollars. You pay me ten dollars if all four teams don't make all four NFC West teams don't make the the playoffs and I pay you a hundred dollars if all four do. I'd make that. You would. $10? Why not? It's $10. Okay. We have made the bet. I will be $10 richer at the end of this, this offseason. Okay. At the end of this football season. Because there's no... Ch- I mean, 3.7%. I mean, I guess maybe. Maybe that would be about right. You don't just have to be that much better. Because if you think that the NFC West is that much better, they're all going to beat each other up, right? Like, if all these other divisions stink... That means some of those other bad teams are going to play even worse teams. It is so hard to think of all three wildcard teams being from the same division, given the frequency with which those teams will have to play each other. What does the 17th game do? I mean, I think the 17th game actually does add an advantage to the, to the possibility of four teams making the playoffs. It does, because you're adding a game that is outside the division. So that's another game that all four of those teams can win. All four of those teams, because on most, I mean, for what each each team has six games. There's there's six games between that every team has that is going to guarantee a loss or mm-hmm. a tie for another team in the division, and that sort of cannibalism that it guarantees makes it really hard to imagine two teams making the wild card, let alone all three. The other thing, what divisions are the NFC West playing? AFC South, arguably the worst in the league. I mean, Tennessee maybe is the best team. Ten- uh, the Indianapolis Colts are putting Sam Ellinger out there with the first-team offense today, so they don't even really feel good about Jacob Eason coming in as a backup. And the NFC division that you play is the NFC North. So you're going up against Chicago, against Detroit, Green Bay, which is a difficult one, and I imagine is one that you would probably lose, and Minnesota, who you've done so well against. I I, I feel like... Those are two pretty good divisions to get matched up with if you are in the NFC West. So, yeah, the cannibalization hurts, 
that's six games versus the rest of the schedule that these guys are going to end up playing. I feel so strongly about this bet. Like I feel so like I'm I'm even though it's a negligible amount. Whereas like hundred bucks would hurt to give up, right? Like hundred bucks doesn't feel very good. Like you're like yeah, yeah. I, I don't. But I'm gonna get the ten dollars. Ten doesn't so, feel bad. I'm so I'm so I'm so I'm so absolutely convinced of that. This is a spicy chicken sandwich from Chick Fil A that I can't get now. <laughs> so this way I can watch my calories and my carbs, and at the same time potentially get a hundo. It, it's. Of all the teams in the NFC West, which do you think is the most likely one to be on the outside looking in? Which is the worst of the four teams? I think we all agree it's Arizona. Is that is that lazy that we're all basically like, yep, Cliff Kingsbury, so bye? Because that's been the general consensus I think everyone has, not just us two. Yeah. Also San Francisco, right? Like the the arguments that people have put forward for that have been well they've been so banged up in recent years they're not going to be that banged up again That's right been they've mine. been the un, the unluckiest team but they're the one that doesn't have a, a settled quarterback situation true but they're also the one that ha- when they were fully healthy won the division with Jimmy Garoppolo as their quarterback and I I, I look at San Francisco I, I still think they're the most talented team top to bottom in in the NFC West just in terms of like the overall balance and that what they have on on each side of the ball, what they have on offense, skill wise, offensive line too. The Rams are very top heavy, and I, I would say with the Seahawks too, they're relatively top heavy. So I can see why San Francisco though would be on the outside looking in. All it takes is one injury to quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo, and we don't really know what Trey Lance is going to be. Though we are getting rave reviews from anybody who will say anything about the guy to the point where now yeah. he's going to get situational snaps as opposed to just being the de facto backup. We're moving closer. Like, watching that quarterback competition is giving off serious fumes of Russell Wilson's rookie year. It's giving off, like, watching it from a distance and how people are reacting down there and what the reporters are saying. It is, I'm not saying that Trey Lance is going to start because I think Jimmy Garoppolo has obviously a much better track record than Matt Flynn had. But the way that they've talked about it and the way people are now, hey, he's going to get situational snaps, he's going to get opportunities. That's the same way it progressed with Russell. And he ended up starting week one, and, and Matt Flynn never got a shot. So not saying that's going to happen, but it's, it, that, that's the pattern that we've seen there. It is Danny and Gallant. We've got Ray Roberts, who's going to give us a look into the inside play of the offensive line and what to expect going forward. That's next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Offensive line coach Alex Gibbs used to have these very funny expressions he would use the team, talking about, hey, use your big quarterback brain to figure it out. Okay, you give him enough time to allow his big quarterback brain to work. When we start evaluating offensive line, though, I think it's best to turn to someone who's well-versed in protecting the big quarterback brain. Right, like that. You don't. You don't. You don't go to. You don't go to the Mason to talk to them about carpentry. You need. To, you need to go to an offensive lineman to talk about offensive line play. Right. Yeah, and I think former first round pick offensive linemen in particular are pretty good to talk to. Well, we're very excited to have Ray with us, a great friend of the program, someone who is a great friend and asset here at seven ten ESPN Seattle. Uh, Ray is with us. Ray, how are you, man? Yo, I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good. How you guys doing? Doing great. Good. How have you thought the off season went? I know we last time we talked might have been after Russ had some set had some thoughts about the the pass protection. I know that you you spoke up about what you saw from the offensive line. Then they added Gabe Jackson. What have you thought of the the group that you've seen out there at training camp so far, Ray? Well, the group that I've 
really liked seeing so far is uh, Shell at you know right tackle, uh, Damian Lewis, uh, Fuller, and then uh, Gabe, and then hopefully at some point you know Dwayne Brown. But uh, I really I I like the way they've positioned the offensive line with a good mix of young players and a good mix of some seasoned veterans. Uh, I think that kind of makes for good energy in the room, and it also makes for good mentoring opportunities in the room. Uh, but then I really do like I, I really do like the combination of the, the guards and, and Fuller at center because I think that the two guards have a really good chance at being like the best guard duo in the league because they are very good football players. I mean, like everything they do, their, their footwork, their pad level, their finish, their tenacity, their toughness, all that kind of stuff, uh, they do really, really, really well. And to me, uh, the middle of that offensive line is going to be the key to the offensive line. That's really exciting to hear about the guards and specifically Gabe Jackson. We obviously liked what we saw from Damian Lewis last year. Ray, it, it's it's pretty funny to me that we've gone from at the beginning of this offseason, Russ raising some issues about the offensive line, to just yesterday, Russ saying, yeah, man, I really hope that the Seahawks take care of things with Dwayne Brown at left tackle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it's going to take to get Dwayne back in the fold? You know, I don't I don't know exactly what it is that he's that he's asking for. Um uh but you know, like, you know, we keep trying to, you know, having the conversation, well, should it be Dwayne Brown first or Jamal Adams first? It's like just either one of them can be first. Let's just, just let's just start getting them uh, you know, into practice and and some pads and ready to go. But uh I think if you uh if Dwayne Brown misses any regular season games uh, then to me that's a fault on both both sides because you're going to really miss the opportunity to get off to a really good start uh, on offense. You're going to miss the opportunity to really have um, you know Dwayne Brown playing alongside um, uh, uh, man, his name's much Damian Lewis, uh, yeah. and so it's it, I, I think it's going to be harmful for both sides if 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 we can't get him in on time because there's some good backups. Cedric Aboy, he can, can go out there and, and play football. I even think Stone Forsyth with, you know, some help with, mm. with the tight ends or the running backs from time to time can go out there, but it's not going to be the same as having Dwayne Brown because it just kind of frees then those dudes up to get into the pass routes and do other things. We're talking to Ray Roberts here on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. Ray's nice enough to join us. The Seahawks are changing kind of offensive line. They didn't change offensive line coaches, but they do have a new offense put in place. Can you notice any differences of what they're asking the line to do this year, Ray? You know, uh, I don't know if there's a, a big difference in what you're asking the line to do, but what by this offense, by design, is giving the offensive line more tools to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I like about the office, uh, not necessarily the offensive line, with this comment, but I like that they're running the ball from under the center. Like it's really, you know, Chris Carson can get really downhill a lot faster, a lot harder, you know, coming from, uh, you know, coming downhill to get the ball versus standing beside Russell and handing it to him. The thing I like that this offense does for the offensive line is that uh, it, you can see it in the scrimmage. So there were, they started the game out where they, it was a play action pass uh, on the, the mock game. They started out as a play action pass to the left. Uh, and then they, Russell rolled to his right just a little bit and then threw it back to his left. Uh, and then they ran a, a zone plays with that same exact footwork, with that same exact look. And so what that does is 
it slows the defense down. So now these pass rushers have to decide, like, man, is this a run or is this a pass? So that's a, that's a tool that the offensive line gets to have in this belt so that it protects Russell. Uh, in practice, I've been able to watch even in the one-on-ones the different types of pass sets that they're taking. Before, all the pass sets were, if, if you can visualize it, were more like vertical pass sets where the offensive line was just, especially the tackles, were kind of just going straight backwards. And uh, just about every drop-back pass was that way. But in, uh, in this camp, I've been able to see guys do what I would call like an ang- uh, angle set where you're kind of going at a 45-degree angle, and then also a short set where you're just jumping on a guy right now. Like Stone Forsyth should be an expert at this. He's so big, arms are so long, good enough feet, where you just take one step towards the, the defensive end, you reach out and grab it. That's called a short set. Before, you didn't have, they didn't have all three of those options uh, at their disposal. And all of that stuff helps pass blocking and protection. The play calling th- that they're allowed to do those different sets in will help them in protection. So those are the types of things that, that I see. That I see. And, uh, and quite frankly, I wish that I could you know, get on the video board and show people so they can understand the difference in those different sets and how that impacts pass protection. Ray Roberts was a first-round tackle in the NFL. He's with us now on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. Ray, there was a moment last year, it was a Seahawks-Vikings game, where Russ extended a play, and Dwayne Brown was not too thrilled with how long he extended the play, did not do the offensive line any justice on that one. He was making their jobs a little bit more difficult. It does feel, based off of my observations, that the Seahawks offense is getting the ball out a little bit more quickly. Do you think that Russ has been, and it's really difficult, at least for me, to gauge like what's a successful pass rush and what mm-hmm. isn't, but with the way that things are you know, judged in training camp because obviously you, know, you can't touch the quarterback, but has mm-hmm. Russ been making the offensive line's job easier? Has he actually been getting the ball out more quickly, in your opinion? When I, the the practice I've been to at camp, uh, absolutely. Like uh, and like, it's not even like uh, like three step drop, get the ball out kind of thing. But even just making quicker decisions by Russ to just get the ball out. So sometimes when we say get the ball out fast, people envision in their minds like a three step drop, quick slants and short passes and all that. But even the the deep ball that he that he had to de, uh, DK in the mock game, he made a decision and got the ball out. And so all of that really helps you know protect himself because he's not holding on to the ball taking hits but then again when you think about how does that impact the offensive line well then i know i can be a little bit more aggressive in my pass blocking and my pass sets and things if i know the ball is going to come out on time because sometimes when you're a little bit more aggressive in the pass block uh pass blocking the the defender may get off the block late and then you're kind of fighting to kind of you know keep him off the quarterback. Mm. Uh, but if and so if Russell's holding the ball, then that's going to impact your ability to be aggressive in in the pass blocking. But if you if he's getting the ball out on time, not holding it, not you know running back 15 yards and running all over the place, uh, uh, then you can have a chance to really be aggressive like that. But if he's doing that, you can't you can't you can't pass block that way. And so even in the scrimmage, just the ball was just coming out fast. Even in the play-action passes, a lot of times play-action is trying to push the ball way down the field, but it seems like they're running more like in the play-action passes, they were running more like intermediate and underneath routes so you can make a quicker read. So it's like I'm going to look to the intermediate route. It's not there. Boom, I'm going to kick. I'm going to throw it to the running back over here in the flat, or I'm going to throw this quick slant or throw this ball, the intermediate route coming across the middle. And so I like all of that because it gets the ball out of Russell's hands, uh, gives the offensive line a chance to be successful, and the other thing I like about it is that um, I was thinking about this this morning. I think this offense will 
allow Russell to be the playmaker and not be the play. Mm. Because I think um, being the playmaker means I'm going to get the ball to the dudes because you have all these weapons now. You can't say you don't have weapons. You can get the ball to the guys that can make plays. And so in that sense, you're being the playmaker because you're getting it to them. When you're the play, that's when you're holding on to the ball. That's when you're running all over the place. That's when you're all the off-script plays, which, you know, you want Russell to still have that in his game, but you don't want that to be his game. And so uh, I like the way getting the ball out faster, uh, you know, putting Chris Carson in a position where he, he's more effective running downhill with the football. So Russell becomes the playmaker and not the play because I, I, it's great when he's the, the play and it works, but sometimes when he's the play and he gets sacked for 15-yard loss, then it just puts the whole, the whole offense off schedule. Yeah, it puts him in a boomer bust type thing. When it works, it's awesome. And when it doesn't, you don't really have any, any alternatives. He is Ray Roberts. Ray, we're grateful for your time this morning. You know you're going to have a busy year, right? Because given what happened in the offseason, given what happened in the offseason, after every sack, there's going to be 10 people in, in, the, in the press box that are going to turn to you after every sack and say, all right, Ray, was that the offensive line or was it, or, or was it Russ? Did he hold the ball too long? You're going to be trusted to be the adjudicator of blame. Well, I'm going to always uh, slightly lean towards my guys. But, uh, you, but should. you, know, you should. We need that. Keep them there's, too, there's too many quarterbacks out here that are, that are always going to blame the O-line. Ray, no, seriously, it's great to talk to you, man. We'll look forward to catching thanks, up with you more later in the season. Oh, thanks for having me. You guys have a good rest of the day. All right, that is Ray Roberts, one of our favorites. We've got another one of our favorites, Shannon Dreyer. She joins us next. We'll talk about the Mariners and their playoff chances, but more importantly, the future that's so bright. That's ahead. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The Mariners are back home after a rough, disappointing weekend in New York. And joining us right now to talk about it from 710sports.com, the one and only Shannon Dreher. Shannon, how are you? I'm well, thank you. It's good to have you with us. This was a disappointing weekend. Your overall takeaways from said series against New York, it really feels like they should have had three of four or at least split the series with all the blown leads that they had. Yeah, it did. It, there was a lot that came into play in that series, obviously. And it, it, at first I looked at it and, and said kind of what you just said, you know, with the close games and the blown leads, perhaps they should have had it. And then the closer I looked at it and, you know, they actually came out with a positive run differential in that series, yet still lost three games. We saw some very good starting pitching performances, yet still lost three games. Uh, we saw a young club go into a place that can be very difficult to play. And it was very difficult for them to play there. So along those lines, I, I think it was disappointing. And I would listen to Scott Service every night, and he'd be saying, hey, we're, we're playing good baseball. And I'm like, no, you're, you're losing right now. But then, again, when you looked at everything that I just said, and that they were toe-to-toe with a team that just absolutely uh, reloaded, and I think some factors came into play that probably wouldn't have come into play had they been in Seattle playing those games. Uh, I think I started to look at it a little bit differently, talked to some people outside of Seattle, who, and they kind of thought, you know, you should have had at least one more in that series. So along those lines, it's disappointing, but when you look at it as far as to what they were doing in that series and hopefully taking some things forward, perhaps a little bit uh, more optimistic. Shannon, I saw uh, it was a 
odds that were listed by baseball reference on playoff likelihood. And that takes into account a lot, uh, strength of schedule, but also just how the team's playing. They had the Mariners at 1.2% at this point, which seems low. It's, it seems low given that they're, they're the eighth team in a race for six spots, and they're only five and a half games back of that spot right now. But w- when I looked at that, I was like, yeah, that's, that's probably I, – I can see where they arrive at that number given run differential and given the quality of teams that they're chasing and that they're, they're going to have to catch two, two different teams. It kind of also made me feel that Jerry probably made the right calculations – in the moves that he made in getting guys that will continue to contribute going forward. That said, they, they have lost four or they've, they've gone four and eight since the trade of Graveman. How do you, how do you put those trades in, in context with what's happened since then? I, you know, I don't want to get into the whole mystical of, Oh, they've just fallen apart and they're deflated after the trade of one player. I, I, I can understand where there were definitely, you know, it, it impacted definitely the day it happened, probably the day after that there were feelings. And I understand that. And I understand where they're coming from. I understand that there was a big disappointment, not only in that they, they lost a, a teammate that was so popular, but also they took that as we're not getting help. We're getting hurt here. And that was something that had to be dealt with. But I have also seen a team in front of me that has dealt with adversity from the get go this year and bounced back every time. And I refuse to believe that they would want to be derailed by one event, regardless of how unpopular it was. So I don't think that there's anything mystical that's been going on in the last week in particular, and that they cannot win because of this trade. Um, I think some other things that have come into play and, uh, you know, you only have to look so far as, you know, how they hit on this road trip. They didn't hit at all. Um, you know, they've got some individual struggles that are going on uh, along those lines. Yeah, they did blow a couple of saves. We haven't seen that this year, but uh, I think in what you're talking about and run differential and everything else that's been happening, uh, there was some normalizing that was expected to happen at some point, And perhaps it's just happening right now. The good news is, is hopefully they bounce a little bit there. So, you know, when you're the general manager and you're looking at the situation, you said it's a one point, whatever, right now, I don't think that that chance had ever been higher than 8%. And if you think back to what the original goal of all of this was, of tearing it down was, was, you know, Jerry DePoto didn't want the goal to be maybe we can get that second wild card spot, maybe have a chance with a one game. He was trying to build something that would sustain for, for years to come and give them a better chance every year. And I think that that came into play in the moves that he made at the deadline where he could have done something that would have helped them grab what was originally something that they were trying to stay away from. And now who knows that might've helped propel them a little bit further. You don't know, but again, the chances were still realistically and by the numbers, very small that they were going to make the postseason. So it appears that he stayed the course. He made the move was consistent with moves that he has been making since the beginning of this in trading for a player both for the now and for the future, and went from there. And and we saw the fallout from that. But I think that at this point, um, you know, they should be on track on the field as, as you know, far as they've had some time. They've added a better offensive player. Toro has kind of been yep. one of the MVPs of the offense since he's come over. So, you know, to me, I, I think there's some things that uh, make sense in what he did, and I understand why that would disrupt the club, but I, I think it's very consistent in what he has said from the beginning. Shannon Dreher, 710sports.com, with us covering the Mariners for 710sports.com. One of the other 
promising developments. Maybe the only promising development that came from the weekend other than four really good starts from the starters were the play that we saw from Jared Kelnick. And outside of getting ejected, he has a two-double game. He gets a home run early on in this series. Things have started to come together for him after, I guess, he tinkered with his swing. Yeah, there's a lot that he did. And, you know, the first thing when he got sent down, uh, there was a kind of mental adjustment that had to be made, which, you know, he, of course, came out of that adjustment a little bit and getting ejected from the game the other day, which, you know, for the record, I think would have been perfectly fine if he had stopped before he got to the dugout. You know, at that point, it had to be over with. But, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, I outlined it in a piece on 710sports.com, and he talked about it. It was quite candid that he really just, uh, you know, got sent down. He went to work on a bunch of things. Everything was working, got called back up, and all of a sudden was sliding backwards again, and he got to the point where he had nothing to lose. He had to change something. And uh, he took a suggestion that had been made to him that he hadn't quite been able to grasp onto at that point, and that was just stand up a little bit straighter at the plate and that allows his hands to work better that allowed him to see that outside low pitch a little bit better he took it into the game he had uh, admitted he wasn't comfortable with it in the first two at bats he made the change mid game on a uh, july 27th in a game against the astros and immediately got two hits up the middle he's like hey i'm gonna stick with this and uh, i think that's what's got him going and then he said that you know he was grateful that everything happened as far as the first struggle he had because he learned that he can pull himself out of that. And he said that that's probably the biggest thing that he gets from this year. And and he's thankful that he had that happen because he said, I believe I have more confidence now that I know that I can come out of a struggle like that, that I can find answers. But uh, it was a nice conversation to have with him. It was great to hear his process. Uh, He talked quite a bit about the team too. He's focused forward. He wants to help get this group to October and, uh, you know, just an interesting, interesting kind of progression that he's made. And I think we're lucky that he is so open in talking about it. You don't usually get to see these processes, but he's been very upfront if asked about what is going on with him and how he's getting through it and how he pulls out of these struggles. She is Shannon Dreyer. She's our Mariners insider. You can follow uh, her coverage on 710sports.com, including a story on Kelnick and, and how he's developed through this year. And mostly, Shannon, it's great to hear your voice. Well, it's great to hear your voices. Did you enjoy your games in the Bronx? I enjoys the wrong word. There is something specifically agonizing about sweating out dwindling leads in that stadium. And I don't know if it Ooh. takes you back to 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 two thousand and two thousand one and what happened with Arthur Rhodes, or it's the 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 Cretans that are out there in the bleachers getting properly uh, lubricated over the course of the first five innings to bring themselves to a full lather as the team starts hitting. It's excruciating, and it was it was frustrating. But I, I did I did I did like cheering on the Mariners. Were you able to heckle at all? That's what I was wondering. A little bit. My wife did a very good job. My 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 wife actually engaged some of the people that were near us when they were up there cheering for strikeouts to happen. She at one point said, "You're not doing anything." You got nothing, <laughs> which I was like, whoa, whoa, got a little feisty one here. But yeah, yeah, uh, I, it was uh, surprisingly uh, or unsurprisingly, it was, it was tougher to be effective in that in that environment because Yankee fans tend to be loud. Oh, yes, they do. You're kind of outnumbered there, but I'm sure you represented well. I did. I did. Thank you very much, Shannon. All right. That is Shannon Dreher, 710sports.com. Up next on Danny and Gallant, I'm taking a look at the television in front of me. And it is reading Russ and the Seahawks. What's wrong? 
why are people assuming that some of the things that have to do with Dwayne Brown and Jamal Adams have anything to do with Russell Wilson? We'll dive into that next.